Hello and welcome to Kitchen Metal, the podcast where you join me, Mick Palmer, as I write, record, produce a thrash metal inspired album on my own, in my kitchen. Hence the title, Kitchen Metal. Now, some bloody good podcasts and YouTube videos out there where you can dive in to find out all the details you need to get that perfect tone and balance mix in your recordings. That spins on compression EQ and all kinds of techniques. This isn't one of those. Honestly, I haven't a fucking clue about that stuff. This is about my journey of putting together an album titled Machine Stops, and believe me, audio aficionados will pull their hair out on some of the shortcuts that I'm taking. And along the way, I'll go through the whole process and put together nine songs for release, how the music was written, the lyrical meanings, the recording sessions, and sessions, the equipment, or lack thereof, the technology, the whole story. I'll also chat with a couple of guests along the way. It'll be fun, won't it? Greet me hearties, when I left you last you'll have been listening to Crenza Temple after I went through my process of recording it. Now, today it's doing the, the mixing and we'll concentrate on another couple of tracks from the album for that and then we'll finish up with my track by track guide to The Machine Stops. As I said in the first episode I've got dodgy hearing and I haven't a scooby-doo about what I'm doing here. I've watched videos on home recording on YouTube, grafted together some basics, I've listened to some well, quite a few podcasts on the subject, but with the podcasts after 10 minutes, I'm lost. EQ and a snare drum, busting your rhythm guitars, I sort of understand it, but they lose me as they get more tech. Like I see some of those tutorial vids, they explain, demonstrate, and then it made sounds no different. Uh, it's just aren't up to the changes. The strange thing is, when I'm working at a racetrack in my day job, I know what the engine sounds are from two miles away, including those that some musicians think sound the same as each other. So go and figure that fucker out. So at this point we've got nine tracks here. Written, recorded. And the shame of it is, is that it's not as simple as that. What I need to do is get the effects and sounds I want, the levels sorted, and then to master the whole project. And believe me, the way I'm going around this, and I've seen in forums, is unconventional. Well, that's what I've been told. Right then, back to the beginning. When I jammed a bunch of riffs, I used Amplitude 3, picked out the sound and off I went, recording bits and bobs that I liked. Now, with everything recorded, it's time to hone or even change the guitar tone and guitar sound. So, I've got two guitars in the left channel and two in the right. I want it to sound like there are two different players here, so they'll have different sounds. So, the two on the right will have one set up and the two on the left will have another. The thing I've discovered is you can find a beautiful tone, but when you double it up into two guitars, it can sound like a mushy fart. So it's about getting a sound that's practical and works. So we'll start off with some guitar presets and see which one I like. Right, rhythm guitar sound sorted. On the left we have this. And on the right we have this. 
the one on the left, it, it, it's it's uh, the amp seems based around a warhead amp, and the one on the right based around a copy of a Marshall. Um, and in the mix, the sound much more powerful on the Rowan. As a habit, I usually go for a much more distortion-like sound. For me, live sound away from using Reaper, when I have my distortion pedal on, it's an HM2, so it sounds more like this. When you throw that into the mix for these songs, it doesn't hit this, this, the same way. Less is more here. For the first time in life, I'm taking note of that. Everything else can fit in around this, so it's time for the drums, which is a little more complicated. Okay, it's been a fuckload more complicated. So, <laughs> drums. In a previous episode, I rambled about plausibility, about how you actually play the drums being mirrored in the MIDI files. They're sorted. But I need two types of drum sounds, one for the heavy stuff and one for the light stuff. Superior Drummer and Easy Drummer, both from Toontrack, me basis. I've gone through a lot of experimentation with them and it's a pain in the arse. I've written everything around the kit setup that I would use, which is bass drum with a double pedal, snare, two rack toms, floor tom for the hitty parts, crash hi-hat, ride cymbal with a powerful bell in the centre, two loud crash cymbals and a splash cymbal. It's a fairly simple layout, but with both programmes I'm um, left with tons of options, about 20 different snare sounds and similar amounts for each of the drum piece. I've tried building a kit with my favourite sound from each piece, but it sounds mega crap. Uh, the groupings of kits are sampled as such that, say, three snares will work with three bass drums and the like. Like, the thrash kit sounds complete, but if you put the vintage rock selection of snares in there, you can tell it's not from the same kit. So I found the kit I'm most happy with, which is this one. That's the initial sound sorted. Now, levels. The superior drummer plug-in has internal mixers, so when you load it up in the program, you should be able to adjust the volume of each piece. It's simply not satisfactory for me. So what I've done is repeat the MIDI four times and arm each track, so I have a better control of volumes. Track one's just the snare drum on its own. Track 2 is the bass drum and toms. Track 3 and track 4 are the hi-hat riding cymbals. And voila, a whole kit with easily adjustable volumes. I've bust them, which means that although I can adjust the volume and add effects on each instrument, like you just see the snare drum, they can all be controlled together with the master track, so if I wanted to add room reverb, then it's easy as that. So there they are, sorted, alongside the rhythm guitars. After that, uh, I've thrown in bass to fill in the gap in the frequency there. There it is. It, it, there's a bit of EQ work being done on it. I like the sound, um, but it'll fade into the background anyway. 
lead guitar I found a sound that I like when I'm laying down the tracks I like it so much with a few tweaks that I'm keeping that it doesn't sound brilliant on its own but it works in the mix uh, there's tweaks that are needed because of the wound strings that the strings with the low notes end up being lost in the mix with the high notes come through clearer what I've found out online here is that I need a limiter although I've no doubt that some of you will be crying out fuck off right now you need this fucking EQ or that fucking EQ but for a lazy sod like me who hasn't got a clue what I'm doing and I've tried EQs and made a right mess of things this is the easiest solution for old Dumbo limited sets of maximum volume apparently mean I get more of this which does the job for me like playing guitars messed around got a few I like layered them now I like it then vocals they they me oh this really has messed with me head I really don't know what I'm doing here I followed instructions over and over again to no avail so I'm cheating I'm, I'm using the amplitude guitar amp with the reverb leading slightly overdriven guitar amp some in there trying to get a DS at work and feeling so you can hear all all that kind of stuff um but the files are going to be available individually when you buy the album or if you buy the album or get it free from Bandcamp so if you want to mix things yourself and show me what Reap was really capable of I'd love to hear what any viewers could do with it um balancing mastering well the recording was put together wearing headphones yep the audio file listeners are still here I presume thinking well we know I know use decent speakers add the level of your heat create a triangle that consists of two of the speakers and your heat and you can balance things there I didn't do that and if I did anyway it wouldn't sound great because I can hear your shit out my left ear hardly um, I got a rough mix through my headphones threw it on a USB stick compared it through a pure digital radio with a single speaker plugged it into my TV through TV speakers and finally the acid test the one a few tutorials I've seen recommend give it the car stereo test if it sounds good there it sounds good anywhere that's the theory and to me it sounded fine which led us to the final stage which is where I put all nine songs as their finished wave files back onto a single reaper track fiddled with a bit of reverb EQ and compression to try and give them all a similar sounding level before giving it all a second run through the various devices for a listen and there you go complete album in a couple of weeks it's about three and a half to four weeks. Ghost in the machine style. As far as putting the album together, that is, it's been a hard journey. It's been full of mistakes. Um, I'm going to do this again. Um, where I'm going to do some doom metal for another series, which is my 40. I'll have a head start there, but that's not the end of this episode. Two things to go. Remember Brett from the last episode? Well, I need lifting again, so we're back to the Bosby assist. Last time we spoke about getting back into the groove, and I don't mean the fucking Madonna song, but about being in a band and what he and the are up to, and what the future for Boz the band is. When you're older, do the ambitions change? What stays the same? But one thing that hasn't changed, it seems, is the sharing by bands of the backline. In fact, I think that gig that night, I, I used your bass amp as a guitar, or was it? So I used somebody's bass amp, and the sound was absolutely oh. fucking awful.
Uh, I had a Carsbro thing that was busy dying, I think. It was probably my Carsbro 150 thing. Was it? Is it black and green? It wasn't a Trace Elliott, though. <laughs> <laughs> tell you that. Aye. Hey, I tell you, talking about gigs, the crazy enough, that, that, Trillian, that Trillian's gig, um, Tony's amp, and the guy from Iron Altars amp both died. <laughs> so well, I killed I killed the bass amp, and so so like when Doug Tyke went on, they were like, uh, mate, you know your little, uh, I've got this tiny little 200 watt elf, Trace Elliot elf, right? He says, I think that we'll have to use that. And you know what? It was absolutely beautiful. <laughs> tiny little thing. Plugged it in, massive cab, away guns, and it was a classic. So you don't need a big amp, man. You just need a nice, clean sound, bit of DI, you're rocking them. Because nobody cares. It's like, you know, what's your bass sound? I don't know. I plug it in. <laughs> Without a lot, I've got a bass sound. I just, I just, I just plug it in. And if it makes a sound, I'm happy. It's like, I don't know how. Oh, uh, yeah. Because there's some people who spend that much time, I would, obsessing over getting the right tone. And then you yeah. go from place to place. Never sounds the same. In fact, you can back the same place. Never sounds the same, does it? No. Yeah. I know. Back back in the oh. day, I just turn up. You know, like, is there going to be a backline? Right. Well, bring me guitar. Bring me Boss HM two. Oh. Whatever comes out, comes out. Yeah. Jump around like that, an ass. Yeah. That, that that was the panic. The Julian's gig. It's like, cause Hilliard um, took all his amps home because COVID. So he was getting more people in for drinking, you use the stage to sit down. But that was it, it's like, well, yeah, but I took all my arms home, so there is no backline, let bring it out. It's like, oh, but it's trillions, you've always had it. I, but it was mine, and I took it home because I wasn't used to it. Oh, I read, No, no, no bad vibes, because Hilly, Hilly's a god, man, he's, 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 he's killed. <laughs> oh, God, he's, he's made plenty of crap band sound good over the years, hasn't he? Uh, I've been in most of them as well. Like. Uh, uh, I've been in a few. <laughs> Uh, sweaty horrible practice rooms in 1980 god knows what it wouldn't wouldn't have been happening like. exactly <laughs> was it was it early 90s or late 80s i don't know both late 80s and early uh, well, i started uh, going down there about i think it was 88 89 when i was 89 when i was 14. because uh, we're talking like i mean for, for context we're, we're talking like and Justice for All had just been released, hadn't it? There was right. no such thing as the Black Album. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's how old we are. <laughs> that's uh, some people, that never happened. <laughs> I like it. Didn't like anything after, though. No, well, I've, I've tried, but, like, it's, it's um, I don't know. Even listen to them now. I mean, I would, I would go and see them again, but they uh, you see, I mean, they've got to give them, them, give them that dues, like they've, uh, they've, they've put the time in. The guitar it? sounds like they've got these days absolutely awful. Like on the latest that much about four year old or something. Absolutely uh, horrible sounding guitars. It's a shame yeah, as well because Rob Torillo was fucking a bomb man. Yeah, I was a huge ST fan back in the day. Yeah, More I than Metallica, I think. No, I, I used to go and skating and all that shit. <laughs> Sorry, when I used to go and fart on. I used to go and get injuries. So what's the plans for the future? The kind of like, is this, you know, just, just love that kind of like, we're going to make it kind of thing? Or is it like... Just... Why not at all? No, no. It's the most chill band. Like, like, I'm not young anymore. I've got 
and the wife's going to say, "Well, you never spend it." I've got I've got family commitments, got a full time job. That's that's decent, you know. Um, and obviously, um, I, I cannot just up sticks and do a tour on out like that. <laughs> Not that it would. Have, besides, everyone might think we're shit, you know. So, but be, basically, it's just get, get get a record released and just play local and just enjoy enjoy that. Uh, if it goes bigger, then so be it. But we're not. Um, but you see, you see that the younger bands like really trying to break it. But like, uh, it's difficult. It's it's a compromise. I, I don't I don't think that we we'll want anything bigger than just dropping an album and having people like it, and then people want to just come and see us do it live. Like, but then. Uh, right. Because and because we've got a rift bank of uh, and this is just my thoughts. They might think, stop talking shit, you know. <laughs> We're going to be huge, and so be it, you know. But uh, it's just it's just it's just take it as it comes, enjoy it for what it is, because it might not last. And right now, I'm having the wheel of a time now. It's people, you know, wanting us to play gigs with them, thinking me though. I just, I just blagged my way into a band and now I'm now I'm doing gigs. I'm like, like I always thought that the pinnacle of my musical career would be to play trillions and now like I'm there every other week. It's like <laughs> got another one as well coming another two. So you're not gonna aim for the bloodstock new stage, are you? Yeah we do. We that that's the dream is is because we did do Metal to the Masses um and and the the band that we were coming up with Desolation they won eventually but it was a bit of a um because all the heats got cancelled and stuff like that they just did it all in one night with the bands that could make it and joe was the best and uh that's the night i fell down the ditch and desolation one i think that's probably why because i was just like yes because i love them <laughs> and um and uh yeah so they played and when i went to see their set where i was bloodstock and it was it was really nice to see your mates on stick my i don't know them that well i'll probably get to know them or uh, the, um, it's nice to see it made, get successful, man. I like it. So, we will do it. Like we, what, the, the stumbling block is getting getting a record out, getting a nice recorded thing, and then we're gonna start promoting all the shit, like not shit, but all the, all the daft recordings and the home video things we're gonna bring in when when the main recording's done. Hopefully in, in October, we've got a guy to, to record it. One of their mates is in a. I name dropping all the time because I'm too excited not to. But um, and they're just local bands, but they like, I don't know. I get get told not to gush all the time, but like I'm I'm like a kid in a candy shop, or like doing stuff. But like uh, Tombstone King, Tombstone Crow, yeah, Farm Out of Tombstone Crow is going to do the recording. Aye, so that's just just needs gushing and whatnot. It's like, I think coming back to that whole thing of um. Coming back I'd be the same. all these years. I'd, I'd be the same for Soul Moon. Yeah, yeah. It's nice because, like, it, it, it's like with, I mean, the Scythe Roll, I mean, for all, for what that was, it was just some, some kids playing in a band and then obviously they died a death, but, but it was never meant to be anything. But it's kind of nice to, to pick up where that left off and see it to its end. This is what would have happened. And I don't think a lot of people get to do that with bands that we're in and, and have. You know, people clap when they're on stage when they're like forty-six year old doing what exactly? Because some of the riffs are side for riffs. I just keep recycling the same fucking bass lines. No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's hope yet. Could the machine stops become a live project? I don't think so. 
I'd love to think so because the writing process, like, uh, everything's written with one thing in mind, and the only way I know how, and that's to write the songs as if they're going to be played live. Again, like I said before, it's uplifting to know that I'm not the only one of us old far who still has the drive to to create something new. Um, like I've said many times, first and foremost, I'm a songwriter, and that's the most important thing to me. So before I finish with the machine stops which will be available on Bandcamp very soon. I'm going to go through the tracklist in the album to briefly talk about each of the nine songs and the meanings. And this is the most personal part for me. Right, the opening track, Into the Desolation. Lyrically, it's odd for me. In the first episode of this podcast series, I spoke about how when I started with music, I wanted to write about the things in the world that shape the way of things. Not sword and sorcery, fire and brimstone, Satanism, sci-fi, mythical or horror stuff. Not what many of the metal bands that I listen to were swaying towards. I wanted to give something like that a shot, though, because... I love many of those bands. <laughs> they usually have fuck off awesome album covers and create worlds in a way I couldn't. Sometimes they take stories and adapt them or take influence from. And the latter is where I experimented with that way of writing. You see, I'm a bit of a tabletop wargaming fan. It's my nerd thing, I suppose. I wanted a fast track as the album opener, uh, something a bit away from what I normally concoct lyrically. And in my game of choice is Warhammer 40,000. Yep, I admit it. Fuck Dungeons and Dragons. But there's a series of novels related to that universe of the game entitled The Horus Heresy in the second book of that series was the fall of one of the protagonists, said 28,000 years from now. It includes all of it. It's about sci-fi. It's got religious craziness in there, magical sorcery, swords, mythical tales and everything. It's a cracking book series, even for those with the nose-down view of that kind of game. It's the song where I shredded my vocals halfway through the first verse too. <laughs> it's a dark and violent universe, and looking at the lyrics, it seems to make sense if you know the story. It's almost like I wrote it in abstract. It straight off it comes across as a piece that you can interpret in its own way for yourself, you know. Um, I love playing the verse. I love playing the riffs. The main verse riff was something I'd never experimented with before with the hammer-on pull-off lick. There's even a bass solo there, but looking back now, my favourite part is the end riff. It was a bit of a struggle getting the harmonies right, but I love it. And in a way, I wish it was earlier in the song, but it fits where it does in the song in my head, if you know what I mean. Second track, For Those Who Follow Alone. You should know this one now, if you've listened to the first two episodes. Um, oh, it's her, isn't it? For many years I looked up the 
and she was a representation of trying to achieve real change through non-violent policies. She pushed, she pushed for the brutalised to be allowed to live freely. She was the daughter of her father, the father of Myanmar. Then she came to power and after spending more than a decade under house arrest, policies were laid bare you know, for her people alone, which is for those who follow alone, not the Rohingya Muslim minorities. There was war, crime, war crimes, genocide, indiscriminate torture. She ignored it. Then the cunt went and defended her side in the Hague. Turns out that a voice for freedom is nothing more here than a selfish piece of shit. Track number three, the title track, Machine Stops. It's what the, the band, if you can call it a band, is named after. Uh, it's a long one, clocking in nearly 11 minutes. Uh, I demoed the drums, and it took ages to write notation. Not at all happy with the vocal performance. I think that lets it down. And, and it's quite an adventurous piece as well. I almost dropped the vocals to have it as an instrumental. But the song itself, when I was at school in an education system that didn't agree with me at all, I adored English literature and there was one short story that inspired me, it was from 1909, The Machine Stops by A.M. Forster. If you've never read it, it's a story about a young man and his mother who live on opposite sides of the world in the far future. Humanity no longer physically interacts, our species lives underground in pods where they communicate by a glowing plate that project Face is almost like a TV screen. And their every need, <coughs> food, hygiene, medicine, books, comfort, it's all brought to them in the pod. Where lectures and concerts are watched through this machine to gain original ideas and second-hand knowledge. If you haven't read it, I won't spoil the end. But the technology predicted in that book 112 years ago, 112 years ago is now real. It's the internet, it's Zoom, it's Skype, it's YouTube, it's social media, it's the human race. It, it's the direction that it's heading towards and it's the human race thinking that it's heading forwards thinking that tech can replace interaction I think we've seen for many in the last year and a half that that isn't true but it is a stark one of where, where, we, could, where we could go uh, musically the way it connects with the lyrics there's a long clean piece almost a song in itself which was fun to record G sharp to E don't think I've used that much in the past uh, like I said, the drum in that part was a pain to sort. It was, there's lots of fills in it, but no two fills are the same. It took a day and a half to transcribe them from drums to notation to put them to guitar pro. The heavier parts were partially influenced by Voivod with some prog sensibilities in there. It's a statement piece for me, and it's beyond the music.
track four, This Is Not A War. Before I talk about the song, there is the other thing here, the art of the tracks. What order do they work in? This is nine tracks in a specific order, but it isn't because track four here is actually, we are working out, track four, side one, when I was putting it together. I approached it like the albums I bought back in the day, final and cassette. CD and string don't seem to have the same cares as a planned out two-sider, so that's why things are where they are. In this instance, I wanted a brutal riff. I knew the subject, but I had no lyrics, so I banged out my heart into the guitar and came up with this. Uh, to fit the injustice of conflict in Palestine. It's not a song about Israeli policy. It's not a song about whether the PLO had justified the wrong struggle. It's a song about people and conscience. Naturally, it's biased in support of the Palestinian people. That's my political lean. But it's about who was involved and who was affected. The first point of view is that of a main person comparing themselves with people I know. People I went to school with, grew up with and who took a career path that I had the opportunity to follow but chose not to on ethical grounds, which is to produce military ordnance. Um, look, there are justifiable, in my opinion, reasons for producing and using weapons. War is necessary sometimes, but when you're building those weapons, you do not know where they will be used or why. And this is the dichotomy between the families on both sides of the relationship with that weapon. It's not a fair fight out there, and the song references the Israeli Air Force F-16s. The hardly rock thrown, is it? I'm not talking about the armed Palestinian organisations. I'm talking about normal people who have hopes and dreams. They want their kids to grow up in peace. They want to live to a right old age and better themselves. But they're locked into an area of land with not enough open opportunity. And historically, over the last few decades, it's a place where innocents have been killed without just, including that 11-year-old girl who's referenced in there. Side 2, track 1, number 5 overall, Cleanse the Temple. I promised in the last episode that I'd tell you the story of this one. Sorry if it takes too long. But from the music point of view, you know by now, if you listen to the other episodes, what it is. When my oldest son was very young, there was a really shit table. When my oldest son was very young, there was a really shit table TV channel called TCC, the children's channel. The super low budget didn't run all day. I think for where I lived it kicked off at 6am for a few hours then morphed into gold until late on where it was stopped at MTV but from 4am in the morning I think 2 hours became the Christian channel 2 hours every morning a bloke called Rory Alec and his wife Wendy would ramble on a bunch of boxes it worked for them and that 2 hours stopped became got TV one of the biggest evangelical channels on the planet what I didn't realise was that the channel was local to me I was surprised one morning when I was back in shop at the open scene place to have an agitated Rory Alec in the queue behind us. I wasn't happy he was giving us the eyes. 
he wanted to get a rush on, well mate, I don't wrap my chocolate in the bags, I'm not squashing my bread, no fucker, five loaves, doesn't matter, they're all going in. Anyway, I can't recall what he said, but I know I told him that his TV channel was shite. Um, he didn't reply, he just put his head down. And at that point, I had him down as a judgmental person, you know. And the first verse is about him. You know, he's not above me, he's not above you. As far as he goes, I'm still married. He's the one who's divorced because he couldn't keep his cock tied up. You know, if you're an evangelist, you're supposed to keep your cock in your pants, aren't you? But when, the funny thing is as well, when they hopped off that time slot on that channel, their transmitter slot was taken over by a news station set up by people who worked for them at the Christian channel. It wasn't in the same vein, it was the horror channel. Following on from that is a track called Concealed Agenda. Not some kind of governmental cover-up or secret plans. It's simply a story about a bloke I worked with in a factory. Uh, for six months or so, fucking good rapport. Around shared values, taste and the like. Some long, deep conversation about sport and sporting issues. Then, one day, during a conversation, it was a, a racist slur. And the short of it was, it turned out, that's what, that's what he was. Racist, homophobic, the lot. Um, and it was a surprise. It's a short song to the point, and it allows us to use the word cunt over and over again. Slow Building Stomper, that's the seventh track on there, The Saviour. It's got a bit of a groove on, a bit influenced by bands like Trouble and Sabbath. I like the riffs and some little harmonies. The structure, all the songs, this one's the most pleasurable to play for me. Uh, Subject-wise, it, it's linked to the first songs I began writing in the 80s about the evils of nuclear power. We're in an era where a lot of folk like the idea of expanding nuclear heroes, clean energy. That's great to post fuck up, eh? As a society, we have the ability to manufacture the components needed for renewable energy production, but it's all down to money. If you agree with nuclear, why don't you go and spend a couple of weeks until the floor match Chernobyl? See if you're still a massive arse opening after that, eh?
Key number eight. Resident, it's a cheat song. <laughs> the lyrics are actually from around 1993 about the, the treatment of veterans who returned from the first Gulf War in 91, and it's no different way. Um, it's up with the current Afghan crisis and the veterans who were served there, who were, who were seeing their work, and that of their colleagues who never returned being passed to one side. It's kind of from the government point of view, the utter disregard they have for the welfare while praising troops. It, it's sickening that after all this time support still isn't there properly in a time when we're now close to the point of, in society where we're close to getting rid of the stigma of, stigma of mental health issues. Um, for the music, it's Frankenstein. Two different riff sessions produced two halves of a song that I just stitched together. And I think it works. I like it. Wait. And finally, the last one, Fermi Paradox. It starts off with the father of the hydrogen bomb, Edvard Teller, being in part of a conversation with Enrico Fermi, discussing the possibility of alien life and why there isn't any official proof of contact. If the universe is so big, the probability of its existence added to the lack of proof of not if you're a believer. It's puzzling. But it's not about whether there is or isn't life out there. It's about whether or not we should be a silent planet. Should we be inviting the unknown here? After all, if they can come here, what could they have the power to do? Well then, that's that. I'm not one for long goodbyes. Have a look for the album on Bandcamp, turn around to another social media, like comment, subscribe if it's something that you need to do that on, whatever. Cheers for listening. Hope you enjoyed the journey. Kitchen Metal Podcast is written and performed by Mick Palmer and produced by JDR Publishing.